2: Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday, it's 4 o'clock, and I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand on for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything really that's on your heart. All you have to do is dial 210 340 9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll- free at eight seven seven six three zero k s l r that's six three zero five seven five seven you can email questions to us by emailing questions at Calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you that if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call call now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got a lot going on tonight. My producer was laughing at me at 28 year wait. <laughs> we're going to be starting a new book, teaching the book of Leviticus tonight. Uh, I put it off as long as I possibly could. And the Lord says, nope, now is the time. So we're starting Leviticus tonight at eight o'clock. And then, of course, tomorrow. Paula will be live in studio with me on the day -day edition of the program. So that is for uh, especially you ladies, but anybody uh, who needs some encouragement, Paula, that's what she does the best. Let me get to questions and then we will wait for your phone calls. Here's an anonymous question that came into our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron, please shed some light. On blasphemous thoughts, and if they are forgiven, also do we ever get rid of them? These scare me, and I just need them to never come back. Anonymous, whenever we talk about just, I need these things to go away, I can't, it, we forget that there's an enemy. And the very thing that you're afraid of, he's going to keep pushing those buttons. So all you need to remember is that the enemy is the source of those thoughts. They come from the outside in. And that's when we have to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to the Lord. And when we do that, and this is the nature of the the spiritual fight, when we fight successfully, God is pleased. He's not upset with you because you had the thought. He understands the source of the thought. So don't don't ever imagine that you're going to get rid of the thoughts. The enemy is going to keep pushing those buttons over and over and over. But when those thoughts come into you, Um, then you just remember, no, I know where that comes from. And and simply, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to hear from you. I don't want to talk to him. I want to talk to you. So Jesus, you take care of those things. But you don't have to ask for forgiveness for those thoughts. You just realize that's an enemy who's trying to destroy you. And uh, they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop. I I have the same issue with nightmares. Um, Boy, I wish... The Lord would just take him away, but that's just not the nature of the battle that we're in. And I think one of the things that we have to do is to remember always that this is just the nature of spiritual warfare. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, uh, is something that you can uh, lean on. Um, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to men. In other words, this is common for everybody. Uh, and then it says and God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So you you just need to understand that that he's got you and you can deal with it. Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine. Those are another place that you can go to and change your thoughts, uh, sort of change them from the thoughts that are coming in. And then you can start thinking about the things that are, are pure, the things that are true, the things that are noble, those kind of things. And that will do the trick. So that's what we, we deal with, with blasphemous thoughts, thoughts. Just remember, they are always from an enemy. Don't let them settle in your brain. Don't uh, uh, deal with them. Just just get rid of them. And the way you do that is simply to start thinking about the goodness of God. So anonymous, I hope that makes uh, sense. Um, blasphemous thoughts, again, don't need to be forgiven. They come from an outside source. Um, If you are, and and I don't think you are, but if you're in in any way referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, this isn't that at all. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about is the only sin that can't be forgiven. Um, That's just the the condition of dying, uh, having rejected Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Uh, And um, um, if you die not receiving Jesus Christ, then there's no um, remediation for your sin left at all. So thank you for the question, Anonymous. Please don't let the enemy lie to you or scare you. Just deal with them. When you are effective at dealing with them, he'll try something else. Douglas says, uh, Pastor Ron, I don't go to your church, but I've listened to your radio teachings for a long time. You talk often about wanting to be perfect, but how can we want that if we can never accomplish it? Douglas, I do talk about this quite often because, uh, you know, it's sort of a defensive reflection. People say, well, well, nobody's perfect. But the idea is when you're not perfect, um, we need to deal with sin. We need to, instead of saying, well, you know, I'm going to keep sinning because I'm not perfect, uh, we need to want to be perfect, and that's what pleases the Lord. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says that we, we're to find out what pleases the Lord and do those things. And, um, uh, you know, I think every one of us, the Holy Spirit living in us, every one of us wants to be more like Jesus each and every day. This is the theological term sanctification. When we we grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of his will for our lives, we become more like him every day than we were the day before. And that's just part part of growing up. It's just part of growing in the Lord, spending more time with him. So um, the thing is, you can't let our inability to be perfect. I mean, one day we will be perfect. Positionally, Jesus sees us as perfect. But you can't let our inability in the flesh to be perfect, you can't let that keep you from wanting to be or trying to be. I had a question yesterday on the show about what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think that's one of the things. And I want everybody in this listening audience to be disappointed when they, when they mess up. I don't want anybody to, to uh, justify um, sinning in any fashion form, big or small, um, by saying, well, you know, nobody's perfect. What I want people to do is m- want to be more like Jesus every single day. Um, we're told twice, once by Jesus and the other time by Paul, that we're to aim for perfection. And so that's what we aim at. If we miss it, we miss it. But we need to keep aiming at it. And we can't get discouraged, Douglas, just because uh, we can't accomplish it. That's not a, a frustrating battle at all. It's a growing um, battle. It's 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 growing in faith. It's growing in the knowledge of God. It's growing in being more like God each and every day. So um, we want to be perfect. And um, one day I'll be there. I'll be with Jesus when that happens. But uh, I want him to say, nice try. I really want him to say, nice try. Tim says, does the Bible say anything about aliens or UFOs? Tim, the Bible does not say anything about aliens or UFOs because they don't exist. <laughs> Jesus said, um, he's told us everything. There's nothing that we don't need to know. If there were other people out there they would, or other life forms out there, Um, Jesus would have told us about it and I think that's one of the things that we really need to to uh, deal with you know it's easy to listen to all the sensationalism about these issues um, but the reality is they don't exist so no now UFOs might exist and I don't mean from spaceships or anything but I mean just things by definition we can't identify Uh, but um, aliens and UFOs are not something, Tim, that we're going to find anything about in our Bible. Marilyn says, it's hard for me to get excited about Jesus coming back soon. Is something wrong with my walk? Marilyn, I can't tell you if something's wrong with your walk. Um, But I would want to know, and maybe you can follow this up with another email, I'd want to know why you can't get excited about Jesus coming back soon. Uh, as a believer, wanting to be with Jesus, according to Peter, is the goal of our salvation. Nobody goes to play a football game or a soccer game um, without wanting to make a goal. Well, our goal is to be with Jesus, and he's coming back to get us soon. And Marilyn, all, all you need to do, and this is just my perspective, all you need to do is look at the news, read the newspaper, look at the crazy condition of this world around us and then understand that Jesus when he comes um, for us in the rapture of the church and then when he comes back with us at his second coming in Revelation chapter 19, he's going to make this world the way it was supposed to be nearly perfect, not perfect because it's already contaminated with sin but, but nearly perfect There'll be perfect justice. There won't be any more uh, people acting like victims. There won't be uh, any more people blaming other people for the things that they do. Uh, it'll be perfect. And I don't know, Marilyn, what's not to get excited about for that. So I just think you got to get to know him a little, bit, a little bit better. The more you know him, the more you're going to love him. The more time you spend with him, the more time you're going to long to be with him. Uh, even more so i think those are really really important um issues in maryland you, you you'd have to give me a little bit more information what you're afraid of or what you're concerned about uh, or why it's it's uh, hard for you to be excited about him coming back i just can't imagine anything better that's going to happen today I, I wish it would happen today but but if, if jesus was coming back today I think that would be the single greatest thing that could ever happen to any of us in our lives because then we would be with the one who loves us. Marilyn, if you've got more information for me, um, you can send it to the same email address. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Janet says, what is your position on women leading in the church? There are so many different opinions, and there are women in the Bible who lead. Um, Yeah, there are a few women in the Bible who lead, uh, Janet, but um, most of the time people are talking about Deborah. uh, And remember, uh, it it was the time of judges, the worst time in Israel's history, uh, where where everybody did what seemed right in their own eyes, not in in, in the eyes of God. And um, uh, Deborah stepped up. God bless her. She's uh, one of our Old Testament heroes. Um, There are still women in the world stepping up because men refuse to. Uh, God's always going to have someone there. But that's not the case when it comes to women leading in churches. Um, The leaders of the church are to be male. Now, I'm not saying that because... Um, men are smarter or more spiritual or will do a better job. Um, I I think everyone in this audience knows that women are probably at least, let me just say it this way, at least uh, just as smart as we are, just as capable as men are, uh, and in many cases a lot more spiritual than men are, a lot more tuned in to the things of the Spirit. The reason men lead in the church is because God said so. Jesus says it's his church. He is the head, capital H, of the body. And so he makes the rules. And those of us who claim to be servants, we have to follow the rules. Now, literally, in terms of women leading in the church, uh, the only position that women are um, disqualified from, from the jump is, is pastors. Women cannot be pastors in the church. I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over men in the church. That's very clear. that's First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. It's very, very clear, and there's no way to parse it out. There's no way to say, well, it's cultural um simple hermeneutic uh, Genesis is used as a foundation for that. That means it is a an immovable standard, and um um it's the only position that women are unable to occupy, and just like it was in the Garden of Eden when God gave them every tree and every fruit tree for for their pleasure to eat, he only kept one from them, and Eve decided uh, she was interested in that one tree, and it seems to me that this prohibition is a consequence of, of uh, Eve being deceived, that's what Genesis says, and that's what uh, Paul alludes to uh, in in his letter to Timothy. So um, the only opinion that matters, Janet, is, is God's. Now, are there a lot of churches that have women in pastoral roles? The answer is yes. That does not mean the people there aren't saved. I'm sure they are. It doesn't mean that they're not gifted. I'm sure they are. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that we're settling for less than God's best for that particular church. We're settling for less than God's best. Why? Because we have chosen to be disobedient. We have chosen to rebel. And we do that out of a sense of pride or a sense of ego or a sense of justice. You know, I'm equal in all ways to men and and God has given me this gift. Um... All of that may be true, but you're settling for less than God's best. And Janet, just for me, I don't know why anybody would want to go to church that is out of order with a very simple and straightforward um, prohibition um, by the Lord. Uh, One day you can stand with Jesus and you can ask him, well, well, why didn't you want women? He'll tell you. But uh, we don't have the right here to ask that question. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, you know, I, every time I get this question, I like to add that we have a bunch of women in our church who are wonderfully gifted Bible teachers. And the fact that you're gifted to teach or even preach um, um, doesn't mean you can't use the gift if if you can't be a pastor. Uh, there are plenty of opportunities to teach other women. Uh, there are opportunities in counseling, which is just sort of one-on-one teaching the Bible. Um, so, um, women, we need to be content with being obedient to what the Lord tells us to do. And I can honestly say there's uh, no motive other than ego or pride uh, that would would cause any woman to violate um, a clear direction in the Word of God. So, that's pretty much all I got to say, Janet. Thank you very, very much. Jason says, does Ephesians 5.5 mean that if you're in sexual sin, you will not be saved? Um, Jason doesn't mean that at all. Now, let me read Ephesians 5.5. He says, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, we also know Jason, that this is repeated in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 6, also in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to be touching on that, uh, in fact, uh, I think this Friday night in our Galatians study. Um, but, but Paul is talking about immorality and, and sexual immorality. Uh, the, the Greek word is pornea. We get our English word pornography from it. And what, what he means is that if you are actively engaged in sexual immorality, I mean, it is a lifestyle. I'm not talking about a one-time uh, mess-up or, or wow, I, I, I've sinned, I'm so sorry, God. Uh, if you're truly and genuinely repentant. Of course, First 1 John 1, 1.9 covers that. Your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven. But what Paul is saying here and in the other two places as well, to the Corinthians and to the Galatians, is that if you are really a Christian, it is impossible to live a willfully rebellious, immoral lifestyle and be a Christian. It's impossible. Now, we have the problem. You know, people say, well, I'm saved, and and I I served in church, and I believe in Jesus. uh, But they're not born again. Anybody that can continue to sin. And when I'm talking about continuing to sin, I mean the same thing over and over and over. And your conscience doesn't bother you. You've you've made peace with the fact that you're going to sin. What Paul is saying here, Jason, is that you simply don't have the right to claim the name of Jesus Christ. You talk about taking God's name in vain. Those of us who say we are Christians and then live like this. And there's another list of sins in the other two passages I quoted. If you live a lifestyle of continuous rebellion against God and you claim to be a Christian, there's something wrong with your the claim that you make. And it's just as clear as it can be And I think reality, Jason, is that people who say they're saved and live like they're not, are probably not saved at all. We like to think they are because, well, we want everybody to go to heaven. But the reality is um, we're identified by what we do, how we live our lives, rather than what we say with our lips. Hope that helps, Jason. Ben says, "Who do you think wrote Hebrews?" Ben, I am a hundred percent sure, personally, that it was the Apostle Paul. I know people like to, oh no, it was Barnabas, or no, it was Apollos, or there are a few other guesses out there. Um, but Ben, I, I, you cannot read this, start to finish and 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 see anything other than pauline thought there and i think it's very very clear to me uh i think the more you read it the more convinced you will be that it is the apostle paul uh while the style of writing is different and that's one of the basis for people saying that paul is probably not the author of hebrews uh remember we the holy spirit is the one who wrote this the, the the spirit of god pushing the pen of men um, uh, and Paul was writing to a different audience. He was writing to an audience he would know well, and I don't mean personally well, but, but he would know their heart and their, their mindset very, very well. They were Jews. They were being persecuted. He could understand that, and he wrote to them in a far more formal manner than in the other letters Who, who where he's also writing to Gentiles. Um, when I say read it, Ben, now, I, again, I'm not bragging or anything like that, but I've probably read the book of Hebrews a hundred times. And, again, I think once you get past ten times, Paul just sort of jumps out at you as you turn the page's eye, and, and you just you just get to know his thoughts. I've read so much of the Apostle Paul, uh, I mean, if he he could write me a letter and not sign it, and I'd be able to tell, I think... If it was him. So uh, I'm convinced it's the Apostle Paul, and I have no doubt. Having said that, uh, there are lots and lots of people who disagree with me, and people like to argue about it and debate it. I don't see any value in doing that. So just read it a bunch of times and let the Holy Spirit convince you who the author is. We're coming close to the end of this half of the program 3409585. Here is a question from Glenn. Uh, how long of a time between the creation of the universe and the Earth, um, Glenn? You know, we say God created everything in, in, in eternity past. Um, my view on this is that that God made everything in six days, everything. So, so I think that's the the maximum number of uh, or amount of time. Um, you know, he created the the, the the lights in the sky, he created the stars, he created um, what we would call the universe out there, but he did those on a day-by-day basis, and we know that God was finished with everything in six days. And so I, I think uh, if you read it literally, and I think we should, um, then you come to the conclusion that everything that was made was made in six days. As most of you know, I am a very staunch young Earth um, creationist. Uh, I think the Earth is between seven and 10,000 years old. And I think it's interesting that people say, well, no, we can prove that it's um, millions of years old or billions of years old, carbon dating and such. Um, I always say, you know, God made Adam and Eve. They weren't infants when he made them. He made them in whatever the optimal, perfect age is going to be. Uh, and he made them at that that moment. They certainly looked older than they were. On Adam's first full day here, he looked to be a mature adult. So uh, my, my position on this, Glenn, is that it took six days, period. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. Hey, the phones have been quiet. We'd love your participation. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Mitchell. Uh, Pastor Ron, can you talk about the responsibilities of being the spiritual head of a household? Mitchell, this is a really long conversation. Um, Let me refer you to to our website, calvarysa.com. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, and when you get to to, uh, chapter 5, Verse 22, where wives are told to submit to their husbands. Actually, go back one in the study 521, where we're told to submit one to another out of reverence or fear of God. And then take it all the way through um, Ephesians 525. I think I I give a pretty um, detailed uh, understanding of the passage. Let me say uh, in the short term, Mitchell, that the spiritual head of a household is Big time accountable to the Lord uh, for how he represents or misrepresents Jesus. The spiritual head of the household is God's ambassador, God's representative in the home. It does not mean that we are the boss. It means that we are a servant. We serve our wives and our children. We understand the importance of, of setting an example that they can follow, the spiritual head of the household needs to be able to say, and this, by the way, goes for single moms as well. We need to be able to say to our our families, follow me as I follow Christ. That's not arrogant at all. It's not suggesting that you're perfect or you're all that. It's simply saying, look, I'm going to be walking with Jesus, so if you want to find out where Jesus is or who he is, then follow me because that's where I'm going to be. And it's our responsibility to be able to say that. I think as it relates to men, Mitchell, it means that we've got to be um, uh, responsible for teaching our children uh, the Word of God. It means that we are responsible for um, uh, the fruit of the Spirit uh, being evident and and obvious in our own homes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Um, so those are the things, the fruits of the Spirit, that need to characterize our lives. But let me just talk about two of them. One, kindness. The other, gentleness. I think, for me at least, they go together. Mitchell, the head of the household, needs to be a kind man or, in the case of a single mom, a uh, single parent household, a, a kind woman. Uh, we can't be losing our temper and yelling at people. We can't be impatient with people. And uh, we've got to be... Um, aware always that we're representing the Lord. Now, a lot of us as men, we like the idea of being the head of the house. Do as I say, we we think. Um, but that's to misunderstand what spiritual headship is really all about means we're to live it and again I want to use the word accountable we are really accountable to do those things you know we like the 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 privileges go with being the head of the house but we don't like the accountability and believe me Mitchell God holds us accountable you know imagine what it would be like for me to teach the Bible and then at home, in private, be harsh and unkind and impatient with Paula. I mean, how would I ever explain that to Jesus? So being the spiritual head of the household is really important. The Apostle Paul writing to fathers, he says, Fathers, do not embitter or exasperate your children. And I think one of the ways that we embitter or exasperate our children is by not setting a godly example. And uh, they see that inconsistency. And believe me, kids these days can sniff out hypocrisy from a mile away. And we've got to be able to say that my walk with Jesus is authentic and you can follow me. It's very important that we understand that because if not, we're misrepresenting Jesus. And all you have to do when you get to heaven is ask Moses how serious God is about being misrepresented. So, Mitchell, I hope that makes sense to you. It's very, very important uh, for every parent out there. The single most valuable thing you can do to ensure that your kids will walk with Jesus when they grow up is to set an example of Christ-likeness for them as they're growing up. Men, you need to cherish your wives. Ladies, you need to love your husbands and respect them. Your kids need to see all that. And then it won't be so easy for people to rip the faith that we tried to raise them in um, out of their hands and hearts and minds when they go out into the world. Tammy says, Pastor, does the Song of Solomon describe sexual relations between a husband and a wife? Tammy, in very, very vivid detail. Yes, it's flowery language. It is poetic language, symbolic language. But yes, uh, the passion inside a marriage between a husband and a wife is highlighted. And I think a really important part of the Song of Songs. You know, God is the inventor of sex. He knew that he was going to make sex feel good. And he says, this is the proper use of it, a husband and a wife. And, And the Song of Solomon is really a book that that um, um, you, on on full display, we've got a husband uh, enjoying his wife and a wife enjoying reciprocating, uh, responding to the husband's passion uh, with passion of her own, and yeah, it does describe in detail um, sexual relations between a husband and a wife. Tammy, if you are interested, I have a Bible study, uh, one study on the whole book of the Song of Songs, uh, on our website, calvaryessay.com. And uh, I actually get asked to do that Bible study uh, quite often when I go to other places and uh, when I'm asked to teach. Thank you for that. Anonymous says, I'm a Christian, and then in parentheses, recent new believer who is gay. Will God change my attraction to um, women uh, instead of men? Um, Anonymous, I don't know if God will change your attraction. But as you know, as a brand new Christian, um, uh, you you no longer can identify as gay. You identify as a believer in Jesus Christ, submitted to his authority. And he says that sexual relations between men and men or women and women are sin, plain and simple. There's absolutely no um, equivocation at all. And as a Christian with the Holy Spirit living in you, you agree. Now, what that might mean is that you are going to have to uh, uh, forfeit the, the sexual part of of your life. Um, Paul says uh, uh, some are eunuchs born that way. Others are made that way. Others are, are that way out of obedience to Christ. Ask for the gift of celibacy and basically uh, don't participate. And when you... Uh, do that when you when you are willing to say, "Lord, I want to go to heaven, I love you and and so I'm going to put this part of my life on hold and what I'm going to do with that is is honor you with my body. That's what we're told to do. honor the Lord with our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, regarding changing your same sex attraction, um, I personally think that it is rare that that happens. It does happen. Uh, there's a great book. Um, um, the book is called "Gay Girl, Great God." Um, Jackie Hill Perry is the author, and she's rock solid, uh, rock solid. Um, and and she is now married in a in a, a, a passionate sexual relationship with her husband. She has kids now, uh, and serving the Lord uh, at the same time. Um, sometimes he will change. Your your sexual attraction, um, but sometimes he won't. And and uh, how often that happens uh, in my own experience with people, it doesn't happen often. What it means is you're going to have to deny, not be in denial. There's a there's a really different term, but deny uh, your sexuality altogether, and find the fulfillment that God. Um, promises all who are completely submitted to him um, you know his grace is sufficient for um, a lot of things in life. well, his grace will be sufficient for you, and you can live that rich, full, and abundant life that Jesus talks about. I want to say one other thing, and this is for everybody out there i don 't i 'm not going to get to it today, but I have a, another question uh, similar to that um, when somebody who is same-sex attracted says no to that attraction and lives a life committed to the Lord, who, who lives a godly life empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, the sacrifice they make is so extreme that God will really and truly bless them. So don't let anybody make you feel guilty about the same sex attraction. Don't let the enemy uh, pound you about same- sex attraction. Uh, I think there's a time we've got to decide that I'd rather go to heaven and be with you, Jesus, forever than live my life here giving giving in to my 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 sexual temptations. Um, I'm going to be with you, and so I'm just going to, sex is not going to be a big part of my life. I know that's a radical position in this world that we live in. But think about how shameful it is that we have now identified nearly everybody according to their sexual identity. And it's just the the people are miserable. So God is really pleased when we say no to something like that. And we do it for no other reason than we want to We want to be with Jesus. We want to be with him forever and eternity. And we want to please him. Find out what pleases the Lord. Sometimes it's saying no to these kinds of temptations. Anonymous, thank you for having the courage to ask. Here's another anonymous. Um, oh, this might get me in trouble. Um, are Christian recovery groups good? Um, my answer is always the same, no. Christian recovery groups... Celebrate recovery, and probably the most well-known. But there are a bunch of others. Um, It's they're they're groups. I mean, they're based on AA, which certainly has nothing to do with Christ. Um, They're psychology bound. They're they're um, um, in contradistinction from the Word of God. You know, once an addict, always an addict. Uh, you got to keep coming to the meetings. That's that's completely the opposite Where the Bible says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It doesn't mean the temptation won't be there. It just means that, that you've, you've got a new weapon to fight with. You're a new person. The old person was an addict. The new person is free from that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Anonymous, it, it really bothers me personally that we just very thinly disguise uh, an, an AA program or a 12-step program with um, Christian terms, Christianese. Uh, and, and I understand there are people that want groups like that. They, they want attention. Um, they, they want, you know, I always say misery loves company. And so they, they, they get that attention in those groups. But But any group, Any program that violates um, one of the great promises God has made us, the old is gone, the new has come, uh, is certainly not healthy and and is not of God. Now, I want to be clear, not to be misunderstood. There are people that get saved in 12-step groups. And I'm happy for that. But that's just God's grace. That has nothing to do with the 12-step group. Uh, There are people who have been able to stay sober, by being around the 12 step groups you know dredging up the pain um god is good and 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 god will help but these messages in these 12 step groups are anti-christian you know you don't just say well uh, i've changed my higher power from something um that isn't christ to christ and and call it christian you can't do it so Those of you who are out there who struggle uh, with uh, addictions of any kind, alcohol, drugs, sex, uh, anything else, just recategorize those things as sin. And the reality is our flesh, my flesh, is addicted to sin, and Jesus has freed me from the power of sin and death. And all we have to do is have enough faith to believe that and walk with Jesus. Now, I want to make make this really, really practical because I know there are people out there uh, biting their lips as I say this. When I say just be with Jesus, believe me, you're not going to go do drugs if you're hanging out with Jesus. The problem is we leave Jesus behind and then we go do drugs. Well, that's not Jesus' fault. That's, That's your fault. So you hang out with Jesus, you're not going to drink too much. You're not going to do drugs. Hang out with Jesus, you're going to walk in freedom. You're not going to be controlled by the sinful nature. You won't do the same things when you're with Jesus that you would do when Jesus is out of your mind and, and, and away from your presence. He simply he, you, he changes the decisions we make and the choices we make. And so... Um, to find a group that will continually remind you of your bad choices, when God has taken your sin and thrown it in the deepest, darkest ocean, your sin is as far from east as far from you as east is from west, um, doesn't make recovery groups good. I, I just don't think there's any value. A lot of hype. One other comment on recovery groups, um, they get very, very legalistic and controlling. And uh, that's just replacing one addiction for another one, uh, and that's really not good. Freedom is the key. Walking in the freedom that God has given you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I'm laughing at Ralph's question because I don't know the answer. He says, uh, "What should Christian dating look like?" I've been with the same woman for fifty three years. Now tomorrow's date day, so we'll actually go out on a date, and and it'll look it'll look fun. Paula will laugh and she will talk to people and and um, we'll enjoy each other's company. Um, I mean, it, hanging out with Paula is fun. So it looks like fun. But I know you're not talking about people like me who are married, Ralph. So here's what Christian dating ought to look like. It ought to look holy. It ought to have a Bible involved. A lot. Um, we need to understand that if the woman god is brought into your life is really from the lord then you have a responsibility to honor her to to represent jesus to her and the problem is um, you know we we get so selfish we want to satisfy our our own desires and and um, you know christian dating just it needs to be above reproach doesn't mean you can't hold hands it doesn't mean that you should never kiss it means that you should be very mindful of the temptations and the boundaries that are out there. And here's the thing, Ralph, I think every single one of us knows in our heart when we've crossed a line. So that's what Christian dating should look like. By the way, let me say this, and this is another thing that's going to frustrate people in the audience. Uh, Christian dating doesn't look like, a, a, like your cell phone. The apps and the swiping right or left or whatever you do... Um, That's not what Christian dating looks like. Christian dating should be uh, an act of faith. Uh, By faith, uh, you wait for God to bring the man or the woman into your life. Now, I know we like to be more proactive. We're much more impatient than that. But if we're honest, Ralph, if we're honest, the choices that we make when we're impatient, our track record's not very good. The choices haven't been very good. So, Just remember that Jesus is with you on the date. He's with you on the date. I am not one of those who thinks that you should never touch or never kiss or those things are sin. Uh, You shouldn't have to always go out uh, with other couples. Uh, Just do what God has told you to do. 34095. 85 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question um, that's sad. I found out my son has been watching porn at a friend's house. What do I do? I want him to know the proper way to view sex but I'm worried the enemy has him. I saw a local church was having a purity conference, but I was wondering if you thought I should send him to that, or does your church have purity conferences at your church? I do not know what to do. Anonymous, um, I I truly, truly understand. Now, the the, the question suggests that you're watching uh, your son's cell phone use, computer use, you're doing well. Here's the thing. We can't protect kids from the world that they live in. And I, I, I've i been on this soapbox for a long time. We give our kids the very instruments that will destroy them. The enemy will, will destroy them with it. Um, let me say, I hope this is encouraging. This isn't the end of the world. Um, has been watching porn. I don't know if it's just he saw it or it's a, an ongoing pattern. But this is a time when you sit down with your son. And I think mom and dad need to do this together. And make him uh, understand that what they're seeing is a misrepresentation of God's plan for sex. Sex is beautiful, sex is holy, and, and what you're watching with pornography is designed only to appeal to your flesh, and, and especially with boys, we need to let them know that the things that they are watching men do to women on those videos... Um, are, are are not things that women like. They're not things that please the Lord. And it is a distorted and perverted view of sexuality. And then sit down and talk with him about the consequences. And by consequences, I mean the long-term effects that pornography is going to have. He's going to view women as a sex object. How would he explain that to Jesus? And talk to him just that directly. How would you explain to Jesus that you're viewing the women in your life or the women that you come across as sex objects when they're they're daughters of of God. Um, let him let him know that 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 is demeaning to women. Uh, it is demeaning, embarrassing, and shameful for men to be involved in. Now let me be clear: every male from I don't know, 12 years old, maybe younger now, to people beyond my age. We all, our flesh, we all of us like looking at pornography. But we have to make a decision. Do we want to look at pornography or do we want to be with Jesus? And this is a real opportunity. Again, it's not the end of the world. Explain to him rationally that this is a temptation from the enemy. It's a temptation that will demean women and it will distort his view of sexuality and in some cases for life. Now, uh, Anonymous, I am not at all a fan of purity conferences. We teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. You know, it's really easy at a purity conference to fill the room because every kid is going to have their teenage son or daughter at that purity conference. It's really easy to get people to raise their hand and make commitments to being pure, and then the enemy is going to going to make things even worse um, because he's going to pound them. and And when he wins, and they they don't keep their purity vow, uh, then they feel like that they, like they've 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 sinned the unpardonable sin. Um, they need the word, so your church needs to be teaching the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to your kids. So they really and truly understand the role of sex uh, in a relationship. They understand uh, the rules about sex. They understand who God is and why he does these things, uh, why he, he, he tells us these things. And um, the, only, the only thing that's going to be enough to keep them from falling into the sin in the world that we live in is their love for Jesus Christ. You've got to tell them. If you love Jesus, you can't do these things. And then let them ask questions. Let them ask questions. But especially as a mom, and I don't know if this is the mom or the dad who's writing this in, but, but I think that's why I said the mom and the dad should, should have this conversation together. Um, explain to him how demeaning it is to women, how demeaning it is going to be to his future wife. Kids aren't thinking about that far in the future. But explain to them that that what you're seeing is not sex at all. It's filth. It's harmful. It is demeaning. And God takes it very seriously. Um, And the enemy has an opening to destroy. So keep watching cell phone use. Um, Probably you ought to talk to the friend uh, that he's watching it at his house talk to talk to his parents and, and let him know that your son um, was introduced to pornography at, at, at their house and uh, I would not let him go there uh, especially if the parents don't um, really really take it seriously I wouldn't let him go there and hang around with that, that, that kid any, any longer it's that simple protect your kids the, the stakes are too high. Tonight, Leviticus. Boy, I almost said that like it was going to be fun, didn't I? It's not going to be fun, but it's Leviticus. Paul and I will be here tomorrow live at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The word tomorrow. We'll see you then. Bye bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand on for Life with Pastor Ron Arball.